Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Small Biz Gone Viral. I'm your host, Grant LeBeau. Today's guest is Genevieve Liston, an Aussie who moved to New York to grow her side project into one with 10 employees and was on pace to meet her 2020 revenue goal of $5 million until COVID came along. We'll hear that story and how she had to let everyone go, pivot on her own, and is now back on track, hiring and thriving. But first, our fun fact. Today's fun fact is more of a fun quote from one of the great all-time interviewers, Larry King. Larry King passed away over the weekend, and after having racked up more than 30,000 lifetime interviews, Larry had this to say. I remind myself every morning, nothing I say this day will teach me anything. So if I'm going to learn, I must do it by listening. I never learned anything while I was talking. Rest in peace, Mr. King. Time now for our recurring segment, Facts and Figures, where we try to measure this crazy world around us. Starting with unemployment, more of the same. 900,000 people filed for first-time claims last week. This is about average for the pandemic, maybe a smidge on the high side, so no big deal, right? Oh, wrong. Apologies to you regular listeners, but 900,000 is about 50% higher than the pre-COVID all-time record. So basically, in the 100 years or so leading up to COVID that we actually measured unemployment, we never even came close to this. Now we do it every week. Cool, right? My feeling at this point is that this number will be one of the most highly correlated to the reduction in COVID cases as the vaccine heads us toward herd immunity territory. Put differently, unemployment numbers won't dip until COVID dips and businesses can reopen. Speaking of COVID, as we posted about this week on Instagram, hint, hint, at smallbizgoneviral, herd immunity will not be reached until we immunize somewhere between 75 and 90% of the population. Even at the rate of 1 million shots per day, we won't reach herd immunity until sometime in early 2022. Hopefully, though, as we triage the population and immunize the high ri highest risk populations first, death rates will plummet way before we administer 5 or 600 million shots. Before we get to the stock market, here are just a couple quick public health numbers. Brace yourself. Before next week's episode, the world will surpass 100 million total cases, or about 1 in 80 people on this planet. 2.1 million people have died, with 424,000 of those coming in the U.S., adding more than 3,000 deaths every day. The stock market seems to keep its real-world blinders on, as both the S&P at 3,800 and the Dow at 31,000 hover in record territory. One of these days, we'll have venture capitalist and Episode 9 guest Mark Goldberg back on to explain why the stock market just doesn't seem to care at all what's going on on Main Street. Before we move on to our guest, three quick ways to support small businesses. The world is online now more than ever, which means you can do all of this from your couch. One, go on a fan rampage and like every single Instagram post of your favorite small business. Two, write a Yelp or Facebook review. If it's a restaurant, try Yelp. And three, this one is obvious, but the ultimate vote is done with your wallet. You want to see a small business survive? Buy something. Okay, off with the soapbox. Interview time. My guest today is Genevieve Liston, whose LinkedIn reads 
head of partnerships and then head of partnerships. And then she took a position at another company ahead of partnerships. So it's no surprise that what came next was founder and CEO of Extra, a company built around, you guessed it, partnerships. She launched Extra in Australia in 2018 and moved it to the U.S. in 2019, finding innovative ways to deliver premium brands to short-term rentals, hotels, and apartments in as little as 10 minutes. Basically, high-end Uber Eats at warp speed. Her story is full of peaks and valleys, but after listening, you'll see why I'd bet your left arm on her to end up on the mountaintop. Jen, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm obviously excited to have you on for so many reasons, but specifically, I think, because your business idea or your business model, your business is so revolutionary and I've never heard anything like it before. So to get things started, tell us what is that business model or what was that business model pre-COVID? Uh, so pre-COVID, we were a wholesale marketplace that basically made it very easy for direct consumer brands to sell their products to top hospitality and hotel brands. So they were selling to the likes of the W, the Ace, the Dream, um, the, the Selena, and then we had top direct consumer brands like Attitude Sleep, uh, Hims and Hers, Uni, lots of different kind of skincare products and beauty products as well. So when you say um, you're a, whole, a wholesale yeah. marketplace, what does that mean? Like, how, how would a consumer utilize your services? So we were B2B uh, pre-COVID, so there wasn't a consumer element. The way that it played out for a consumer is often they would experience free or marketed products within the room. So they might enter their hotel room and rather than being greeted by an overpriced minibar, the hotel would be able to offer free products to the guest uh, in exchange for a review. And really what this meant is that brands had a way to get people to sample and trial their products. Um, while they're in an environment where they're open to new things. So we saw an incredible uptick uh, from brands and kind of the consumer perception of those brands. And I think we were often surprised by what people got most excited about while they were traveling. Do you, do you have an example of that? The biggest one for me, I think, was actually native deodorant. So we placed native deodorant in a bunch of hotels across New York in the summer. And I think reflecting on it now, it makes a lot of sense. But People went crazy for these native deodorants that we put in there. And I think it must be walking around in a sweaty New York in the, you know, 90 degree heat. They were pretty thankful to get a natural deodorant. But it, and certainly people were like, I never would have thought to try a natural deodorant before. Um, you know, this has completely changed my mind on how effective they were. And I think that was something that for us was a huge thing, like that product discovery moment, which is actually so challenging for direct to consumer brands today, since we shop so much online. So that was going to be my next question was, what, what was the, uh, the path of revenue? Like, like who, who was paying for what along this way? So there was two parts to revenue. The first being that brands would pay to use our channel to distribute products like sampling purposes. Um, and that was kind of a per unit cost. There was a lot of data that went into the back end of it. So matching the right brands with the right locations, we were capturing a lot of consumer reviews. We were feeding through um, from our hotel partners exactly who was staying in those places, which was surprising because the hotels didn't have a lot of that data themselves that we had to collect and then be able to even pass it back to the hotels. Um, so the marketing side of it 
was the first bit. And the second bit was wholesale. So meaning that if a hotel wanted to purchase new products for their mini bar or for a retail store or, um, you know, to be able to put new sheets on their bed, they were able to do it directly through our platform. And it was quite surprising to me because we had thought going into it that hotels had this setup kind of nailed. And I often say, sorry to swear, but they had their shit together. And I think once we lifted up the hood, um, we recognized that really it was the most inefficient processes. So we had top hotels, and I won't mention names, spending six months with four very senior staff organizing what six products would go into a mini bar, which just seemed hugely inefficient to us. And also for brands, I don't have time to go door to door to be able to spend six months. So to be able to shorten that process and be able to um, connect the brands through data was very exciting for us. What inspired you to, like, to, to, to start this business? Where did you, where did you come up with it? So I was actually working in the rideshare industry in, I'm actually Australian, so don't mind what? my New Jersey accent. <laughs> um, I'm from Australia and I was working in the rideshare industry. So with the likes of Uber in Australia and um, I was working in partnerships. And what I found is like brands were willing to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to get their products distributed through the platform. And for me, as someone who kind of comes from a brand background, I was didn't necessarily really believe that the car was the perfect place to distribute products, particularly when you're working with brands like Estee Lauder or, you know, kind of higher end beauty or snack brands. Um, and at the time, Airbnb was really growing and becoming something that was not just kind of a fad. You could see that it was becoming real. And because of that, you had these professional management groups who looked after thousands of Airbnbs. So, like any entrepreneur, I did a little bit of uh, massaging the truth and went to our Airbnb groups, reached out to Airbnb groups and said, I have these brands on the platform. They'd love to share free products with you. Similarly, I went to the brands and said, I have all these luxury Airbnbs who would love to take your products and share with their premium guests. And very quickly, I had a business. I Thinking back on it now, I think in the first couple of months I was making $30,000 pure profit while I was moonlighting. So it was, um, yeah, it was, it was a good time, but uh, I think, you know, as we tried to scale it, we come into some operational issues, but keeping it small like that in the beginning was certainly nice. That seems to be where the, the crux of a, a lot of small businesses journeys is, is in that, that transformation period from small and profitable to scaling that profit profitability to the next level when you're adding zeros to your revenue. And we're, we're going to, we're, we're going to get to that. Yeah. I think, yeah, the main issue is like, you have to start paying warehouses. Like you can't, you know, ship tons and tons of products. Like the way that it was working in the beginning was the brand was shipping it direct to my partner. So I never ever touched the product. I was facilitating the deal and yeah. Anyway, we won't go too much into that. <laughs> but but simpler simpler times. Simpler times, yeah. So as we kind of look to, to wrap up the, the pre-COVID set, just a couple of quick quantitative questions. So as of the end of 2019, what was your operations looking like from a, a headcount standpoint, um, from you know, in terms of employees? Uh, number of partners, number of doors you were serving, and maybe we can end with what your revenue goals were for 
2020? So 2019, uh, I think including engineers who we had some who were working remotely, it was 10. Um, operationally, we were in 10 cities across the US. We had close to 25,000 doors. So we count because we work in hospitality, the doors is the number. Um, and then we were working with, I would say, you know, between 50 and 70 brands. So in that time frame, from studying in Australia, I'd obviously moved to the US. I'd gone through an accelerator program in New York, um, hired a team, raised some money. And then revenue goals for 2020? Revenue goals for 2020, I believe we were aiming at 5 million. Um, we were doing in January, February of this year, we just launched a, our first like pop-up store at the W in Hollywood. We had over 60 brands in there um, and we were doing around about 150,000 a month with aims to kind of ramp that up. We had, we had deals lined up with various different lifestyle hotels to run their retail spaces using our technology and our brands to be able to launch them through there. I, I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit more, but when you say you had plans for the pop-up stores, what does that mean? So our pop-up store at the W was really, the concept was the guest shop or the lobby shop uh, 2.0. Um, and what we've done is we've looked at kind of your standard lobby store, which had a lot of like bling junk in there that you never want to buy, but you felt like you had to buy a souvenir when you're leaving or, you know, you're paying exorbitant amounts for a huge pack of M&Ms or a Toblerone. So we wanted to reimagine that uh, with the products that you actually needed throughout the stay. Uh, the concept was 48 hours. So we found that the average time people stayed in a hotel is 48 hours. And we had laid it out in each section of, you know, the, the stages you go through. So we had you arrive hangry or hungry and thirsty. Um, you then a little jet lag. So then we had like CBD products and things like that to serve you your jet lag. Um, then you get ready for your night out. And so we had different products, like there was some, you know, like condoms and various different things you might need for a night out, but all coming from top direct consumer brands right through to the final stage was, uh, you know, your LA souvenirs. So we worked with local makers in LA and brands to be able to provide products that you actually want to take home um, and things that actually are meaningful from the area rather than, as I mentioned, a fake uh, what do you call it? Uh, Grammy Award or, or whatever. Yeah. It is. Yeah, oh, oh yes, yes. Like that. That's what we said. We walk around to all the gift shops in Hollywood when we were setting it up, and it was like, "Here's my fake Oscar." <laughs> like, "Here's my snow globe of Hollywood," which makes absolutely no sense. So, uh, we really wanted to kind of reimagine what it was to, you know, buy souvenirs to be able to experience a product, and we found that local products were very meaningful and very important for people when they were traveling. So, this was a concept that we had stress tested, proved, we brought the right kind of brands in there and we had the technology to enable these stores and we were rolling them out across a number of hotels across LA and New York in 2020. And at the start of 2020, you had one that was actually, that was mm -hmm. operational. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. As we move to our mid COVID set before we do, as always, Time for our guests, Unsponsor. The Unsponsor being a small business run by awesome people producing an awesome product. They don't know they're getting a shout out. They don't pay for a shout out. They just deserve one for being awesome. So Jen, tell us who is today's show not brought to us by? So this is not brought to you by Mayowell. So their website is drinkmayowell.com. Uh, Mayowell is a bubbly prebiotic drink or tonic 
not only does it taste great, it's super healthy for you, very low in sugar, full of prebiotics. And if people are not familiar with what prebiotics are, they're basically the thing that makes probiotics work. So the way that they describe it is that it's the soil that allows the plant to grow. Uh, the founders are awesome. Oliver is a serial entrepreneur um, and the co-founder is a very well-respected uh, entrepreneur in Mexico as well. So they come from very good stock. And do, do you know the owners? I do, I know Oliver very well. We actually went through an accelerator together in New York and just become became very close friends out of there. So we love Oliver. Oh, love it. Okay, so <laughs> drinkmayawell.com, drink M-A-Y-A-Well.com. And of course, they're on Instagram, same thing. Same thing. All right, let's get to your COVID experience. So as we enter the mid-COVID set, let's go ahead and start pretty much the same way we always do, which is how was or, or what was the first way that your business was impacted by COVID. I would imagine that being, you know, uh, uh, so heavily a part of the hotel business that this, this story is going to have some serious significance. And actually, I, I can't tell this story without laughing now, which means that I've made progress. <laughs> right? right. But essentially, like when COVID hit, we were right at the intersection of hospitality and retail so you pretty much couldn't have been in a worse position than where we were but um I think the moment that I really recognized oh do you want me to do that again the moment that I really recognized that um you know this was real was when the MLB and NBA got cancelled I remember I just got off the phone you know in an all hands meeting with the team and I was like it is likely that we will be struck by COVID, if this COVID thing ends up being a thing, like remember back before we actually believed that it was really going to take things down. Of course. Um, <laughs> those were the days. Yeah. Like innocent and sweet. <laughs> back when it was an, an, an other world problem, back when it happened to people across the oceans and, and it and could never happen to sanitizer. us. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I think, you know, for us, it was pretty shocking and forced us to pretty much immediately shut down our operations at the W, we tried a little bit to keep it going. So we put the product on Postmates. We closed the door. Um, I had one of the team members, you know, an absolute hero going there, going there every single day. And she was fulfilling the orders from local businesses um, that were ordering it on Postmates. Um, but, you know, the revenue just wasn't enough to justify. So we kind of irked it out as long as we could. And then it came to a point where we had to say, we need to put the business on a hiatus and kind of wait for this to pass. So what is, when you say you, you had to put it on hiatus, did that include layoffs? Did that include just like a full pause button and, and going down to, to zero? Or what, what did that look like? It did. It included all of the above. So I had to lay off the entire team. And I think, you know, even saying something like wait for this to pass just shows how naive we were about how long this was going to stick around. So I had to lay off the entire team, which I mean, I think for anyone or anyone who's ever had to do layoffs, they know how tough it is. But in a startup, it's impossibly tough because these are people who you almost consider your family, like you've been in the trenches together. Um, yeah, I, I mean, before it happened, I think I knew four days and I'd had the conversation with the investors that this is what needed to happen. And it took me like three days to kind of 
build up the courage to actually have the conversation and yeah it, I mean it's just it still makes me emotional thinking about it because these are people that you genuinely care about and you know you want by your side and you kind of as a solo founder I relied on them you know to get me through and um, you know luckily they took it really well they understood the circumstances um, and then yeah kind of obviously the conversation with our investors was we're going to have to pause this um, save revenue so that you know either we pivot or we wait until we can come out the other side and that's kind of what we did yeah I think that's one of the difficult things is is in that calculus you have to weigh do I let these people go who are you know friends essentially family who have been with you you know especially as a solopreneur you don't want to let them go but at the same time if you don't then you won't have a business to ever hire anybody back to exactly and i think the you know once you take money from people it stops being about you and then the decisions become about them you know and i think that's what's tough as you're kind of i'm i'm very lucky that my investors are some of the best people I know, you know, and some of them have become very good friends and support me. And if, I, I don't know, I'm not sure everyone has the same experiences that I have, but it's just been, you know, they kind of get me through everything, which has been, um, you know, very important through this all. So, you know, you're kind of in this tug of war position where you understand that it's probably a very hard market to be letting people go to then have to search for new jobs um, but also you have a responsibility to people who have, you know, put in some of them, put in savings that meant they ha- couldn't, they had to take an extra mortgage out of their house and different things like that. It's very meaningful, the money that you take early. It's not just a venture fund who expects you to be one in 10. So y- you started to let people go. Was this April, I'm guessing? I think I hung on till May before I let go of the team. So as I said, we were really just throwing anything at the door. We had made money early on, um, you know, through sampling the short-term rentals. And we just really, we threw everything at it. I think at one point we've like discussed selling masks. Like we were really scraping the barrel on like, what could we do to keep this business going? Um, which it got to a point, I think we, we've built up a very good reputation. Uh, we have a great relationship with brands and, there was also the reputation risk that we were facing as well. If we started trying to do those kind of things, so we didn't really have the luxury to get as scrappy as we might have otherwise. Right. Because you are working with those high end premium brands, both on the, on the product side and on the, the hotel side. Exactly. So you start letting people go in, in May and very quickly your team that was hoping to do 5 million in the year was down to a run rate of zero (laughs) yeah um we went down to zero and i basically my change gear then and it was all in pivot mode we'd had in the back of our mind this vision of where we wanted to go and it was certainly on the the roadmap for the future it just wasn't as simple as like stop everything we're doing and start doing this until we were forced to stop everything we were doing and start doing this so um yeah my then my gears just shifted and I kind of started pivoting towards what was what the business is now yeah and let's go ahead and get into that 
of course, it, what's what I note is that you know you're, you're using the the royal we here because yeah. at this point it's when you say we are pivoting, it's you who's pivoting, right? When it comes to to May, you're it, it, it sounds it like a, a yeah. relatively <laughs> lonely, lonely, lonely entrepreneurial experience, a solopreneurship it was again. So lonely, and like I think the other thing was like everyone we had left the city. You know, I've moved at this point, I'm moved away from Australia. So I'm away from all my family and friends and support network. Uh, luckily, I had my boyfriend. And so he grew up on Shelter Island, which is, you know, out by the Hamptons on Long Island, New York. Um, so we went out there and we were lucky to have that house, like his family home to be able to go out to. Um, but, you know, it's cold. It's winter. <laughs> I hate the cold at the best of times. And you don't know what's going on in the world. And it's just, I remember at one point, I actually made him drive me into East Hampton just so I could see life. because <laughs> I felt like we were in some kind of scene where the whole world has blown up. But, you know, having come from New York, flying back New York and LA pretty, pretty much every week, a full calendar every day, um, you know, just living that kind of thriving growing startup life into a full stop um is pretty shocking and pretty devastating yeah absolutely i, I mean the, the contrast i think is is truly what ma what magnifies that feeling where you're mm. going from you're in the industry that's hit the hardest the two industries that are hit the hardest you're living a lifestyle that is going to be not hit the hardest but is going to be altered the the hardest and your business revenue has now gone from you know from uh, hero to zero so yeah it would be understandable that you'd be uh feeling some things yeah <laughs> so you're you're uh you're in the hamptons and you you're making a, a pivot what what was that pivot like and also i hope do we do we get to the, the the happy part where you start to hire people back on or or is that is that a 2021 that took a little thing? while no that was a 2020 so okay basically yeah so basically the vision had been to move the business from being solely b2b to b2b to c meaning that we wanted to still work with partners as our acquisition model meaning big groups like graystar the dream those kind of groups that we'd worked with um but our product was serving consumers so where we've landed now is we are a white-labeled on-demand marketplace. Um, and essentially, just to kind of like break that down of what it looks like, if we take you checking into the Dream Hotel in Hollywood, you would open the Dream app or you would scan a QR code in your room or you would send a, get a link before asking you if you wanted to order products to be there on arrival or to order anything you kind of want. So I think broad ranges of alcohol, beauty, snacks, um, you name it, it's pretty much on the platform. Uh, and that will be delivered to your door in as little as 10 minutes. So hotels is one channel that we're working with. We're also working with residential. So if you're in an amenity building, you can order your bottle of wine and have your bottle of wine at your door in 10 minutes in some circumstances, um, because we actually set up micro fulfillment centers on site. But the way that it plays out is you would feel like you're ordering from the location you're in or from the, the residential building that you're in. We just power the back end and the brand experience. So it's branded as the dream or the W's exactly. app. And then so mm -hmm. that, that's where the white labeling is. And then the products are still under their normal consumer facing brand name. 
Exactly. Yes. Sorry. That's a very good way of clearing it. Well, I, I, I only mm-hmm. uh, am able to clarify that because we're going through our own uh, on the, on my regular business. Uh, we're going through something somewhat potentially, potentially similar, which okay. hopefully we'll all have some good news here in a, in a few weeks. Yeah. Well, I mean, and look, and I think what's been great for us in this stage is that we're able, we, in the two years that we were building this, we really got in the trenches with our partners, meaning that we heard every single issue. We really stress test all their operations. We understood the workings, what did work, what didn't work, um, and you know where their failings were, where their shortcomings were. And I think what we've been able to come back with genuinely solves their problems and if I'm really honest with myself I would probably have told investors in the past that we were solving a true problem but I think we were a solution looking for a problem in the past but now what we find is like all our hospitality partners being Airbnb like short-term rentals hotels or residential all have challenges with operations so in short-term rentals as you can imagine or you know Airbnbs is the margins are super tight because they've got to often share it with the platform that the bookings come in through. Um, and either way, like there is just very thin margins in short-term rentals. And they're also quite spread out, meaning that you have some like coastal areas, they're not as tight together as you have in a hotel. So it's hard for them to be able to move between locations to provide mini, t- mini bar type services or put products into each location. Within hotels, even though we kind of think that operationally it seems to run very smoothly, it does, but it's very uh, thinly kind of put together. There's not a lot of visibility in terms of like what's happening in PL. Um, there is issues with unions, meaning that it can often cost a hotel $39 an hour for a maid <laughs> to be servicing the rooms, like including the different fees. And the unions also make it hard for them to make any changes. So something that might seem simple, like shifting a minibar has to go through lots of processes. And then finally on the residential side, and I think we can thank Amazon for this, is that some partner, some buildings that we work with, we've heard that they process as many as 7.5 million packages a year. <laughs> so doormen are now post office workers in these buildings. Um, and so that's a huge challenge. So essentially the way that we look at it from a residential standpoint is like, we have a line which is uh, renting the apartment should be your first piece of revenue, not your last. So we actually share, do a revenue share with them and the products get delivered directly to the door. So it kind of bypasses their, their mail rooms and limits the amount of issues they have to do with like processing those products as well. And why would a consumer use, I think I know some answers to this, but why would a consumer use your service as they're, as they're checking in to, well, although they don't know it's your service because it's white labeled under the, the, the renters or rentee, the, the business owner or the, the, the property owners um, under their brand. But why would, why would a, a consumer who's checking in I would have guessed use their use that platform rather than Amazon Prime or Postmates or a similar yeah. service. It's a good question. I think the motivation is slightly different for each of our audiences. And that's kind of we've had the luxury of time to really build it and understand it and survey it across them. In residential, there's a big community element built into it. So there's a feed, you can see what your neighbors are buying, um, be able to see what they've kind of reviewed. 
There's also a reward system built in. So you earn dollars back on all your purchases. Plus our brands do give very generous discounts. Similarly, within hotels, the products, I think we're kind of used to paying through the nose. Um, from minibars, we've all got a bit of shock there. But the other thing is like a lot of our products are, are local provided, but as I mentioned earlier, that was something that we'd learned about what um, consumers and also our partners really wanted. And you're unfamiliar to the space. So, you know, you land late at night, you want to get some food and drinks, but you don't know where to go. You're then provided with a link that's like, we'll have this to your door in 15 minutes. You know, you check in, you get in that. In the short-term rental, again, typically what it comes down to is not really knowing the surroundings, but also our product range is, is very broad and, and things that you might not, you know, we've got beauty brands that are from Sephora and snack brands that you can barely find in Whole Foods, you know, like, we, most of our brands are not on Amazon, so that's not an option. They're not on channels like Postmates, and we deliver it a lot quicker. So 15-minute delivery is our standard. So you're curating a list of high-end kind of boutique brands that are perhaps inaccessible through those first channels that I mentioned. Yeah, I think, I mean, high-end is probably a little bit misleading in that okay. not all of them are super expensive. Um, I think that a lot of them, are, you know, what we call emerging brands or a lot of, a lot more kind of wellness or healthier brands and things like that. Price point is not, is pretty comparable to other things is like to where we really like to keep it, but it is curated to the location. So coming back to what we were before, we still use a lot of that data that we've used in the past to ensure that the, the audiences are matched with the products. So that, that's what I wanted to hit on next is you it sounds like these like this business model is completely different than what you had done prior to prior to covid but obviously you're you're in the same industry you're using a lot of that same data what was that process like in that pivot as far as the work you were doing i mean you're building an app now like i don't think that you i don't think you had an app prior to COVID. We did not know. Right. So completely different. Um, are you, I assume, um, were you doing the coding yourself? I assume. That was, no. Okay. So, okay. So that, that was outsourced. Um, so what was that process like? Like when did you, you know, as far as interacting with your, with your investors, just did you have to go to them and say, Hey, I have this new idea. It's going to be, you know, use, utilize a lot of the same kind of core tenants, but in principles, I'd like to now hire some new people. And what was that process like? How long did it take, et cetera? It took longer than expected. And I think the reason it took a lot longer than expected is just because of COVID. So, you know, whereas we'd been able to pivot or maneuver a little bit within months, this took six months to be able to actually execute the pivot. I think when we started the pivot, it, it, it's kind of had lots of different iterations in its pivot in our mind of where it would go. And where we've landed is a lot closer to what we were doing before um, than we initially thought it was going to be. But just as I mentioned earlier, we're solving the problems or the challenges that we had both operationally or the, the operational burden, burden that we were putting on our partners. So um, it, it feels like a very long journey to get here. Uh, but at the end of the day, like I think what's been beneficial is we actually had a marketplace. It was a wholesale marketplace. There was a lot of technology overlap we could do there. We've always from day dot been very focused on collecting consumer data. And so that's always been a big part of our business model. We collected reviews and rewarded consumers for leading those reviews. 
within our hospitality partners. And then we had the relationship with the brand. So, you know, it was nice to be able, and, and hospitality, to be able to send out emails like, hey, we're coming back in 2021 and get, you know, hundreds of replies saying, thanks guys. Like to the point where we're backlogged up at the moment a month to onboard brands onto our platform. Um, so that's been, it, we, there's a lot of overlap, even though the execution is, of it is different. And I think what happens with a lot of startups, and I think they say that you pivot three times, most businesses pivot three times. I think ours have just have been forced because of COVID to happen a lot quicker than it might have ordinarily happened. I truly believe we would have landed here. I think consumers expect everything on demand now. I think our, we're very impatient. There's not as many options. Like I just know myself as a consumer is, I was a big in-store shopper. So if I needed something, I was going to Sephora, you know, I was going to the store to buy it. Whereas now it's a lot of those stores, you know, will close for a while or they don't exist. So I think we're kind of seeing that retail decline, um, which is presenting all sorts of challenges for brands in terms of finding distribution and consumers in being able to readily get products when they need it in an instant. And what one person's challenge is it another person's opportunity? Opportunity, yeah. I think that's that's Bezos's line, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I, I thought I came up with that just now. <laughs> <laughs> Grant Bezos. Yes, Grant Bezos, exactly. <laughs> uh, so as as we as I'm like kind of reviewing this timeline in my head, it seems like you you know the the, the wheels sort of sort of fell off. But rather than getting a new car completely, you're basically just putting on a different set of wheels and, and maintaining a lot of what was kind of already under the hood. I'm really running with this with this car analogy. I like the car analogy. Actually, I feel like my engineers always use car analogies with me. They're like, if you want to build a car, you have to build a skateboard, then a scooter. And I'm like, I don't want to build a skateboard. I want to build a car. <laughs> it's like the argument is you're just growing up. But um yeah, so I think that's exactly right. We used, we we basically took everything that we learned in the past, plus the technology that we felt had, had worked and we were able to repurpose it. That's not to say that we were, it was, you know, an easy process. It certainly taking, took time to rebuild it, um, but there's just been an incredible amount of crossover. And I think the thing is for an entrepreneur is like, we will often look at an opportunity and we're like, this feels like it makes sense you know and I think that's what makes an entrepreneur is that kind of gut instinct that there is an opportunity there and then you you ask some people you validate it and you feel really good about yourself and then coming back to what we spoke about earlier you then scale it and you're like uh-oh <laughs> and then the wheels fall off again and then you have to figure out okay now this is going to be a bigger car how do I make this work as it did as a skateboard <laughs> um, and so I think for us, I honestly think that COVID was a blessing in that I had time, you know, and I honestly had to take as much as painful as it is. And you'll know that Grant had difficult it is to take downtime when you're an entrepreneur because relaxing is not your favorite thing. But like to reflect back and be like, okay, my team was telling me that this challenge kept coming up over and over again, or they were getting this feedback over and over again. And often you know, we would listen, but were we really listening? And I don't think we were really listening. We were kind of like, oh, that's their problem or that's, you know, but that was the problem, you know? And I think we then had the chance to, or I then had the chance to reflect on that and figure out what is the solution to that problem. And 
also what happened in that time is technology advanced in terms of like inventory management, in terms of drop shipping, in terms of um, micro fulfillment really improved over that time. Like micro fulfillment didn't really used to be a thing. Like when I first started this business, I had this vision for you could order products ahead if you were going to Airbnbs and they'd be there waiting for you. And, you know, same with hotels. If I was having a bachelorette party, I could ensure that when all my guests arrived in their hotel room, there were these gift boxes, you know, all these kind of things. But it just was too difficult to execute because micro-fulfillment wasn't what it is today. And now we have all those micro-fulfillment centers which make it possible for us to be able to deliver, you know, in, in unbelievably short amounts of time. Did I just go on the strangest tangent then? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm just thinking about how you went from this business that you thought was going to do 5 million this year, or, or mm-hmm. that was, that was the aspiration that would, that would have been 175% ish growth year over year, which, you know, as you're scaling is, is, is totally realistic. Then you went down to zero basically repackaged, repurposed, solving a lot of the issues in in the same industry, but were forced to kind of reassess and probably do some 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 soul searching. Was there ever a, a was quitting ever a thought that crossed your mind? I mean, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't. It wasn't I never thought this business could fail before and it just it just never crossed my mind like I just I think I knew how determined a person I am I knew when I took money from people I would never be able to take that lightly like you know you often see people take what's that quibi or whatever it was that took billions of dollars and then I like that just never made any sense to me um and I think you know there was certainly a moment or a few moments where you kind of go, well, maybe I'll just get a job, (laughs) you know, like, and you think if you had a job, maybe you'd, you know, be getting X amount of money a year plus leave plus, you know, all these different benefits, you know, health insurance paid for and whatnot. Um, And stability, peace of mind. Stability. You know, I often say that freedom is the biggest myth in entrepreneurship. I think people think that if you're, going to become an entrepreneur you're going to live this free life and you know the tim ferris four-hour work week and that's just not what things look like i I mean yeah and i i you know i'm sure there are some very clever people out there who can do that but i don't also don't think that's like within my personality to be able to do it but you know you end up working 80 hour weeks you never switch off if you're on a vacation you are thinking about your business you know it's just you're thinking about it with with the freedom of not having to work on it at that very minute. That is a vacation when you're in your own business. And your weekends, like if I wasn't in the office, I felt like I was slacking off. And, and that's not to say that like I don't believe in like downtime. I just think that you become so obsessed with it that your business becomes your identity, you know. And I think at that moment when everything comes crashing down and it's forced to come crashing down around you and with that comes crashing down your identity. It's very shocking. And for me personally, I felt like I'd given up a lot of things because I'd moved across the country. Like, you know, and there was some tough things that happened to me in 2019. Like my brother passed away and I didn't have the time or the freedom 
to be able to properly grieve that. And that's just not something I ever considered being part of the package when you become an entrepreneur. But all that's to say is that I did consider quitting, but that was very brief. Very brief and and obviously was the right choice to not do it as it seems like you have, have found, have refound uh, success. And, and as we look to kind of move towards this, the, the last segment of our show, which is the, the kind of, the, it doesn't really make sense now, but it's called the post-COVID segment because mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, although post-COVID is now, it's on the horizon. It, it, it could happen for a while. This it depends show, where we, you are in the world. <laughs> if you're in Dubai, maybe. <laughs> as far as where you wanted to be with revenue, are you approaching that? At, I guess just, I'll just leave it way more open-ended that, that, than that. Where are you relative to where you wanted to be, where you thought you would be, et cetera? I think, you know, considering the reset, where we are now, I'm very happy with it. We're growing. Uh, we have, you know, we, we've always, I've felt punched above our weight in terms of like the quality of partners that we work with. And this is no no change now. I think, you know, bouncing back, we've been able to very quickly onboard an unbelievable quality of partners, um, both, you know, across short-term rental, residential and hotel. Um yeah, so we're, we're growing. I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Leaving it very open-ended, growing at that. Were you able to hire back any of your old team? I wasn't. And look, as much as I respect and love everyone who worked for our team, I think we need we needed a, a different team moving into this phase. Um, and I think that was another thing kind of in the reflection. I'd, I'd hired pretty young in the past. And I think there is a saying like, actually no I won't say that because there's a but you know I'd hired pretty young in the past and I think now uh I've hired kind of for maturity so bought on a lot of experience people who've kind of worked specifically within the industries that we're uh working with so they bring a lot of that domain expertise you know they've been around the block a few times they can kind of look at different ideas and you know I'm someone who has a lot of ideas a lot of the time so they can kind of say yeah no, let's but good ones. pull it back. Yeah, yeah. so I, I think it's really important. That's another thing just in the reflection is like what I needed as a founder to make this business successful. And, and that is kind of that yin yang, someone who when I come in at like, let's do these million things. They're like, let's just do one um, and then move on to the next one. So I think, you know, really happy with where we've landed on that front. And that, that dovetails really nicely into my next question, which was as you look forward to 2021 and so we're recording this on the 21st the day after biden was inaugurated obviously a big part of his plan is 100 million doses in 100 in 100 days if yeah. that's able to happen then we are at herd, herd immunity late spring early summer maybe we can go back to things as they once were or at least close to it does that play into your calculus as you look forward and I, I guess specifically what I mean by that is, will you, in addition to the white labeling app and, and, and micro fulfillment that you have going now, will you also bring back the, the initial uh, com- core components of your, of your original business? I think we will bring back wholesale down the line. Um, our focus right now you know, I think in the past we we're very focused on revenue, which happens a lot of time in startups. And 
But for us, we're very focused on penetration. And what I mean by that is if we're in a building that has a thousand units, how do we get to 20% of people in that building spending at least $50 on our platform every month? You know, and that sounds, that's achievable for us. And I think if we can do that at scale, it's not actually that long before we get to numbers like 100 million in revenue. So um, I think for us right now, we're remaining laser focused on what we do. I really want to build this business very lean. I don't want to bloat, you know, kind of like the team out. And I think something, I'm daughter of an accountant, so I'm numbers obsessed. <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, for us, we were able to reach profitability in January, February this year. I, I might take us this time, another 18 months to get there just because of how the model works. It's less cash up front kind of model. Um, but, you know, really focused on driving key metrics, which are not necessarily revenue, but lead to high growth at a steady pace. What are some of the benefits from a stability standpoint of having more, be, being more ingrained, more entrenched, more, uh, more, I guess, saturated with, within, uh, within like a single building as opposed to having many buildings lightly using products? Uh, that's actually a really good question. And I think the, the bet that we're making is particularly within residential community is a huge focus for our partners. And I think if we can kind of drive like a community shopping experience within there and it feels like something they're all doing together, um, we believe that will kind of drive more purchasing through the platform so the kind of rewards piece of it all um if not and if it's kind of used lightly and it doesn't kind of take off in terms of the community element of it it is too easy we think to kind of there's lots of platforms kind of within the space and lots of options we have as a consumer and where we order from so i think for us it's like entrenching the behavior within the community so i feel good about ordering from the place that I live and that, you know, drives more and more behavior in them. Yeah, there's also that's... like, sorry to cut you off, but there's also like the psychology of seeing the products coming through. Like you actually, you know, because it's a physical location, you see our products getting delivered with like the bag that says extra, and you know what I mean? So there's that kind of eyeball thing, which reinforces that behavior as well. So that's, that's a big part of it is like branding up the experience so you can see that people are ordering from the extra or the related platform. Taking a step back, I, I think that what you are saying is kind of this, this universally recognized but not universally applied business uh, lesson or, or model, but basically that it's better to have 10 incredible, incredibly dedicated, passionate consumers than it is to, to you know, who, who, who evangelize for you in their day to day, who are spreading the word than it is to have a thousand kind of very light users. And, and it can be difficult as an entrepreneur, I think, to acknowledge that because from an ego standpoint, oh, I have a, I have a thousand customers or, or you know, for yeah. me, I have, oh, we're in, we're in, you know, this many Whole Foods or or this many doors. Well, really, I'd rather be in half that number or a tenth that number, or I guess in my ten versus a thousand, a hundredth of that number. 
if those people are really, really dedicated, because that's something that you can actually build a, a the the core the of the foundation of your business on, and so and survive through whether it's the next pandemic. Hopefully, you know that's a long ways off, or just the normal kind of ups and downs of business. Because those people, they're just worth so much more, but you have to be so much more patient, I guess, and be willing to be willing to put that ego aside. Yeah. And I think you're not you're hitting on two different two things that we really value. One being, and this is what we've seen time and time again, particularly we saw it in short-term rentals, we still see it in hotels. But if the host or if you know your hotel tells you to order from something, people are pretty compliant. You know, like if they give you a platform to use when you check in there and they recommend it, we will see 70% of people will actually take that recommendation. You know, 70%. That might be, yeah. I mean, and that's recommendations. So that might be like go to this restaurant or whatever it is, but that's kind of like the number that's been. Um, I think Airbnb even have that number and that's why they built experiences as, you know, coming from that. So you cannot undervalue the power of recommendations from a brand you trust. And in our sense, the brand is the, the place you're staying or the place you're living. And then the other piece we really value is like people are very simple you give them some points. So we built in a rewards program in there. You earn points through it. You have your own profile. The more you order, the more points you earn. And what I've talked to some of the smartest people I know, but if they're earning points on something and often you'd be like, what do you actually get when you get to the top of those points? And they're like, oh, I don't know. Like it, it can be very nominal, but people love to earn points. We're, we're, humans are very simple like that. So I think, that's really two key things that we want to ingrate. We've built purposely into the platform to drive like the stickiness of the platform and to drive the personal preference of it all. And I think like you have to be in building tech so deliberate about the stickiness of things from the beginning. Like it's not enough just to build a cool product in this day and age. You need to think about what's going to drive viral growth what's going to drive repeat purchase and what's going to drive loyalty. And I think, you know, for us, we think about those things in every single decision that we make. Um, and that's, I think, plays out very well in like how the app and how the service actually works. I'm going to not follow up on that at all because I think that was so well stated and I just loved everything you just said. And I think that's a great place to end. So cool. as listeners, I'm sure want to find out more want to utilize your services, what is the best way to, to find out, um, I guess, find out more about, about your business, how to support you, and then how to actually, how do they get to utilize it? Okay, so I think the best thing for them to do right now is follow us at Powered by Extra on Instagram. And we've got some exciting announcements that we'll be making over the next couple of months. And remember when you check in somewhere, to ask them if they work with Powered by Extra and let's start a movement to start getting people so that you can have better products and better prices everywhere you go. That is what, that, okay, that, that's such a great answer. Yes, that is, <laughs> that is a true way to support a business. And that's something that I, I try to hit on in the beginning of my shows now is saying, here's how, here, here are ways to easily support and meaningfully support small businesses that you want to see succeed mm -hmm. asks ask someone hey you're the general manager of this hotel do you use powered by extra right you go to someone's cafe hey do you sell these energy bars 
hey, do you, mm-hmm. you know, like basically bringing it up in conversation and, and be, you know, evangelize, be, be that person who we were talking about earlier. Exactly. And I'll tell you what, for hotels and short-term rentals, for them, we alleviate all their operational risk and all their inventory risk. And you won't hear a GM in the world who won't be excited by those words. <laughs> Amazing. Jen, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm excited to have you back on it for our, our one-year follow-up <laughs> interview to hear how you've hit not only that 5 million number, but you're, you're en route to that, to that 100 million, which it, it sounds like is, is totally doable. I'm excited. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the chat. Thank you to my guest, Genevieve Liston of Extra. If you want to see the future, check out PoweredByExtra.com. Time now for my unsponsor, aka a small business doing everything right. They don't pay for a shout out. Heck, they don't even know it's coming, but they deserve one. Today's show was not brought to you by Ruby to Blue. Recommended by my wife and sisters, Ruby to Blue creates earrings made from recycled bikinis. Check them out at rubytoblue.com. That's R-U-B-Y-T-O-B-L-U-E.com. Speaking of shopping small, check out smallbizgoneviral.com for a rapidly growing list of unsponsors and the small businesses run by our guests. There are now over 100 businesses listed that you have probably never heard of, but guaranteed will be impressed by. So vote with your wallet for the world you want to live in and shop small. Thank you, Peggy Bunker and the Bunkmates, Worldometer, NPR, Robinhood Snacks, and Morning Brew, Daily News Emails, Statista, and my wonderful, amazing researcher, Kaylin Kwan. Someday this will all be over. Until then, fight the fatigue, social distance, and wear a mask from an office in North Pacific Beach, recorded and edited before and after work hours. I'm Grant LeBeau, and this is Small Biz Gone Viral. And we're back, as always, with our quick bonus lightning round, your reward for sticking this whole interview out. Okay, four quick questions. Number one, Jen, what is your least favorite part about entrepreneurship? I think the loneliness. I feel like you live your life on like a cliff edge and no one can really understand what it's like. And that's why we have this podcast. Number two, what's it like being romantically involved with someone who has a nine to five far from the world of entrepreneurship? I, I think about this often, like my boyfriend will say things to me like, oh, you know, I can't do that because what if they say no or afraid of failure or whatever it is. And like, I'm like, I literally wouldn't get out of bed if I was afraid of failure. So I think every single day we face at least five no's. And the whole thing of being an entrepreneur is just resilience. So you get up every morning and try again. And there's just you know, you simply cannot have that fear of failure. Yeah, you have to have a, a very short-term memory or else your your <laughs> ego would just be in shambles. I always laugh though, because he's like, oh, what happened to that deal? Uh, and I've already forgotten about it. Like, I'm what like, deal? I've like jogged my memory, what <laughs> deal? And he's like, you were really excited about it last like, I'm like, oh, that's dead. <laughs> How do you feel when someone you've known for a really long time, whose opinion you value, asks about the, the status or, or progress of your company? I think like immediately though, there's a little bit of anxiety. You often don't know how to answer it. Sometimes you, you know, you want to be positive with it, but then other times you like, feel like you can't sugarcoat it. But I think the upside is that 
no matter how long you feel like it's taken you to get there for them they're always like wow you you did that really fast and so you know it's nice to get that outsider perspective of someone who's not living in the constant roller coaster that is you know having a business some validation yeah mm-hmm. and lastly because this is a this is a happy show what is your favorite part of entrepreneurship I think the people, like I think the opportunity to meet really interesting people. Um, and then of course, like building something like I didn't even know what project management or a technology platform was before I started this, but you put some pictures down on paper, you talk to a couple of people, then all of a sudden you have a functioning technology platform. And I mean, it's definitely not all of a sudden, but it is quite amazing as someone who's never going to be a builder or do anything like building houses to actually be able to create something and then have users and then hear the stories about how it is changing someone's business or improve their day to day. Or, you know, I remember sitting in meetings where the Hoxton Hotel said to us, like, this platform is life changing for our team. And I think that that's the most rewarding part of entrepreneurship. Thank you.